Good morning. In my, in my, um, my early days of, of youth ministry, um, I, I had an opportunity to take a group of, I've shared parts of these stories before, uh, a group of high school kids to um, a mission trip in the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean, which is an immensely difficult job to, to do mission work in the beautiful tropical island in the Caribbean. Um, and, and when we went on that trip, there, there was, I swear when you do work with students, there's always the one kid, right? Just like there's always the kid in the winter who wears shorts no matter what, right? There's always the one kid who packs so light that you know they're not going to be prepared for whatever it is that's coming. You know, you'd have girls show up with like suitcases and they'd have to like redistribute the weight because they were all over the 50 pound check bag limit. Well, one of the kids showed up, it was a guy who was a junior in high school, of course it was, and he walked in with just a small, like not even a real backpack, but one of those like shoulder slings for a 10 day mission trip international. Uh, and that's all he brought. And it was one of those where I'm like, do you even have enough underwear? And he's like, well, wear it inside out, you know? He's that guy. And, and so you have on the one hand him, and then, you know, of course he wasn't prepared and everything became disastrous and he had to borrow clothing from people and he had to buy stuff from street vendors to, to keep going and we kind of helped him as much as we could. Um, you know, it's a humbling experience to share your deodorant with, with a guy. Um, but, but if you had to sleep with the same room with him, you made it work and you sacrificed. Right? Now, on the other hand, years, years later, this was in the, in the 2010s, I took a group of kids to a mission trip in Savannah, Georgia, uh, through YouthWorks, and I had a, a mom that went with us who was a mom of kind of kindergarten through fifth graders that, that was a part of our church. And, and when we went, she had this backpack with her that I am convinced I could have used to do any kind of major field surgery that was required. Right? So you have this like dichotomy of this, this kid that is just so tremendously unprepared. And on the other side, you have someone that is prepared to a level that is just beyond anything one could ask or imagine. If you ever want to make sure you have everything you need, just get you a preschool mom and you'll be covered. It doesn't matter what happens. Dehydrated, there's water. Hungry, there's snacks. Right? Open heart surgery, yeah, I've got everything we need right in this magic backpack. It's like Dora the Explorer's backpack. It doesn't look like all of it could fit, but stuff just keeps coming out. She was over-prepared. So these two folks have these very different levels of preparation. Have you ever felt in a situation that you found yourself in that you were tremendously under-prepared for what you got into? You thought you were getting into one thing, and you get there, and you realize you really didn't bring what you needed, whether that was a, a items or a skill set or an attitude, or you just kind of showed up thinking it was going to be one way, and you just felt tremendously unprepared. That trip I learned that I went on, by the way, was, was something I learned that I was going on two days before I left. So I myself was not very prepared. They had an adult that dropped out. I had nothing to do with planning that trip. And I was, I was called on a Tuesday night, and I got on a plane at 4 a.m. on a Thursday morning to, to lead that trip. Uh, I myself was not tremendously prepared. The first time I remember, the most unprepared I ever felt in my life, was the first time that I held my, my firstborn son. I remember looking down and was like, I am not prepared for this. I didn't think I could keep him alive. He's four now. I'm still not convinced that I could keep him alive. Uh, at this point, it's going to be less my fault and more his fault. Um, but back then, you know, you just look at this and you feel as helpless as they actually are. Because you're just, no one prepares you for that moment and what it means to, to bring home a life that you are responsible for. There's so many things in life that we embark on for which we are just woefully unprepared. And in our, our passage today, Jesus, the whole point of the passage is that Jesus is trying to prepare his followers, his people. 
those that are seeking after him, right? We, we talk about the disciples and the 12, but there were hundreds of people that were following Jesus. And as he continued to, to heal people and engage with the Pharisees, his following just kept growing and growing. He had this kind of horde of people. I picture it the way that people kind of look at Taylor Swift today, but better, right? They just, they just everywhere he went, they just followed everything. If there was social media in the age of Jesus, there would just be a, a, a majillion viral TikTok videos of Jesus doing stuff. And everybody would be following him, right? He had this group of people just everywhere he went. He would go around, he would go in a boat and, and go across a lake, and the people would run around the lake so they could meet him on the other side. He had this massive horde of people. And, and today's passage is difficult because it has some really harsh words for those people. He wants his disciples, those that were with him, to be as fully prepared as possible for what's coming next. And it's what they don't ever really expect is going to happen, right? Because as we find out when we get into Easter and, and Holy Week, right, the expectation of the people wasn't met with the reality of what Jesus was trying to do, right? We know on the other side of it that what he was doing was actually bigger, but at the time, it in no way lined up with the expectation of the people. And so this is a, a message that is hard. This is a passage that's, that's really uh, seemingly kind of harsh when you read it at face value. But it's a passage that Jesus speaks out of, out of a love and a desire to prepare us for the realities of what is and what's coming. Right? And so let's stand this morning. We're in Luke 14, uh, where we were last week, except for we are at the very end of Luke uh, 14 in verses 25 through 34. Uh, if you're new, we, we stand only because we, we like to just have a reverence for God's word. Uh, I like to distinguish between the words that I speak and the words that God speaks. And so you, you never stand for me talking, but we, we stand for when, uh, for when the Lord's word speaks to us. And so here uh, today from Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and comes or come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and isn't able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt loses its tastes, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Be to God. Have a seat. Honest question that has nothing to do with the sermon. Who here, when you're reading about the tower, the first thought you have was Cuyahoga Falls? Right? You can't read that without looking at that tower every time you drive by it and going, <laughs> yep. That, the cost was not counted that day, my friends. Right? And, and we see the cell tower, it's all about now that it's good for as a reminder of that. It just makes me chuckle every time I read this. My head just goes there. And then friends that I have from out of town are like, what? Right? So, so for some context, this passage takes place at 
I guess, somewhat of the heights in some ways of Jesus' public ministry, right? When you, when you look like at the, the popular meter, right? Jesus comes on the scene and no one really knows who he is and he starts to do some miracles. We have the, the wedding miracle of water to wine and people start to kind of look at, who is this guy? And then he gains some following and he calls his disciples and he moves on. But, but as he goes further and further, more and more people start to follow him, right? As he kind of is on this road to eventually end up in Jerusalem, which we'll talk about when we get to, to Palm Sunday this year, right? But as time goes on, every time they see him do something, more people come around. He goes to a town, he heals a person in a miraculous public big way, and so people want to be a part of that. And, and so at this passage, when we're, when we're here, he's kind of at the height of it. Right? He, he's more popular than he's ever been. His approval rating of the crowds is through the roof. And, 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 and last week, we looked at this dinner invite to the Pharisees where Jesus schools the religious leaders a bit, right? And, and the crowd loves that too, right? They are all about down with the establishment, some of that rhetoric we hear today in some other in some political ways, right? Which I'm not I'm not getting into politics. But we understand what it's like to kind of see somebody tearing down the status quo. And and back then the status quo was a bunch of religious leaders who were very hypocritical and put everybody else down in order to lift themselves up. And so when Jesus starts to attack and chip at them, he gains a following and people want to be a, a part of that. They want the revolution that it seems like Jesus is heading toward. They want a, a king who will overthrow all of the self-righteousness and religious oppression, right? Not the stuff that's of God, but the stuff that they have piled on top to make things hard and to make themselves look good, right? And so he has this massive amount of followers, and as Jesus inches closer and closer to Jerusalem, these crowds begin to increasingly act in celebration, right? By the time we get to the end of 14, this, this crowd that's following Jesus is, is getting ready to, to, to start the party. They're like, man, every time we get closer to Jerusalem, we're, we're, he's going to show up there, and he's going to overthrow the government. And when that happens, like, we want to be as close to him as possible, right? Because he's going to be the next big thing. And we want a slice of it. And so you had, of course, you had followers like, like many of the disciples who were, were walking with him and learning from him and starting to understand some of the, the things that he was teaching and in it for an authentic reason. But you also had a whole bunch of people who were freeloading. They saw where his train was going. They liked the station it was heading towards. And so they jumped on the train. Right? And, and, his, and his popularity soared. And so uh, they thought Jesus was going to take over the city. And, and knock everybody else down. And so they hitch their wagon to him. And that's kind of what you see happening as, as we get into the end of 14. And it's within this context that Jesus makes, in my opinion, the worst marketing decision of all time. Jesus has that habit, right? Like, if you were riding the wave of popularity and, you, and a podium was put up and you got to stand and, and speak, you, you would say something to fire up and in, inspire the crowd to continue to, to follow you and to be more fervent and more passionate. And, you know, you would, you would wave your hands a lot when you talked or whatever. But, but Jesus does something that we don't really see coming. He's kind of the opposite. He instead essentially says... Um, Hey, glad you're all here. Glad you all really like where I'm going. Um, by the way, for you to keep following me, you have to hate your mother and father and children and brother and sister and your own life. Okay, thanks. And, and the crowd is kind of stunned. 
If he's trying to grow or inspire, I'm not sure that that's the methodology that that I would use. Imagine if we did that in churches. For those of you who are new today, uh, what what if you came here and I said, hey, glad glad you're here. Welcome. Um, To attend here is great. One small caveat, though. You have to despise your whole family if you want to keep coming here, or we really don't want you back. Who's coming back next week? Not the welcome mat that you're looking for. And by the way, that's not what we're saying to you, so please come back next week. But that's what, that's what Jesus does. It's one of these hard passages of Scripture to digest, but we need to clear something up. In verse 26 here, Jesus is not telling you, he's not commanding you to actually hate your family. Right? How, do we, how do we know that? How do we know that? Because it says it clearly, right? It, it, it couldn't be more clear. The great crowds gathered. 26, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his essentially whole family, you can't be my disciple. That's a clear-cut word. How can we say that's not what he means? Well, we never look at Scripture verses in isolation, right? That becomes dangerous. We look at the, the whole breadth of Scripture. And if we look at the, the, the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, we have these clear, indisputable commands over and over again to love the very people that are being commanded to hate here. And so Jesus is either not saying, hate your family, or he's hypocritical. And I'm going to argue that it's the first, not the second, right? So, so the language is meant to evoke something here, right? There's a, there's a purpose that is not exactly literal, right? So what's the next strongest sense of the words that we could take here if he's not literally telling you to hate your family? Well, what Jesus is saying is that this should be the dichotomy between your love for Jesus and your love for everybody else, including yourself, right? The, the distance between how much you love Jesus and others should be so great that it almost, in comparison, seems like you hate those people. He's not saying don't love your father, mother, children, brother, sister, yourself even, right? He's saying that your love for them should be so great, for Jesus should be so great, that in comparison, it looks like you don't even really love these people at all. It's a level of love for him that goes so far above and beyond anything else that is indistinguishable, right? You can tell the difference between the way I love those in our congregation and my wife or my children, right? I love all of you. If there's a bus coming and it's, it's you or one of them, it's nice to know you. Have a nice trip to heaven, hopefully, right? Like, that doesn't mean I don't love you. I don't hate you. I don't want you to get hit by a bus. But if I have to pick, there's no contest. I'm not even going to think about it. Some of you are like, man, that's harsh, right? But that's, that's what Jesus is, is trying to do here. He's trying to say that, that there shouldn't be this, this, there should be this distance between the kind of the level of love that you exude. And the sense here is that every other relationship ought to take a back seat to the relationship that you have with Jesus, right? The, the, the language that he uses here is hyperbole. And if you look at Scripture and Jesus' teachings, he does this pretty often, right? You can go to Matthew 18 is one of the best examples is when he talks about sin and he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? Does that mean that tonight when you walk in Giant Eagle and you see that, that very attractive woman and you just happen to catch yourself glancing at her that you should grab something from the aisle and just pop your eyes? No, please don't do that, right? It's, it's hyperbole. Now, there might be somebody who so needs to 
deal with their sin that maybe they have to gouge out their eye or cut off their hand. We generally tend to know that the, the sin issue doesn't reside with our eyes or our hands, but our hearts. Right? And so if you have an issue of sin that involves your, your wandering eyes, getting rid of those isn't really going to help. You're still going to have the heart issue. Right? And we understand how that works. But Jesus is saying, look, you need to take your sin so seriously that you would almost be willing to just gouge out anything that stands in the way of, of getting rid of that sin and coming closer to me. And so in this passage in Luke, he's saying, you, you ought to have such a love for me above the rest of the world and all the people in it, that in comparison, it almost looks like you hate them. Right? He's never saying, don't love your family. He would never say, don't love your family. But what he is saying is, I am first. And so that's how this translates to our, our modern day. God clearly commands for us to love our family. It's central to his kingdom. God created the family. He created husband and wife and, and the way that we generationally reproduce and have children and the nuclear family that exists. Those are things that God created to be good, but he commands him to be first, right? We love in a lot of ways, I think, in today's world. We tend to love our wives and our children and our husbands and our our families more than we love God, right? And the way we, we know this is when we put our children's, this is the great test of parents, if you're parents, if you put your children's other types of well-being above their spiritual well-being, that's a, it's a great indicator that you might love your children more than you love the Lord, right? If you're more concerned about how they're doing academically than you're concerned about how they're doing spiritually, that might be an indicator as to where the heart issue lies. This is one of those times where we go from preaching to meddling. Right? We, we can see, like, we care more about our financial security as a family. And you don't, you're not selfish, so you don't say that I want security for my own safety, but I guess it's so my children can never worry. Right? But we care about that more than we care about their spiritual well-being. Well, there might be an indicator that we actually love our, our families more than we love the Lord, and that's a problem. And, and, and Jesus is saying that that is problematic. Right? He is to come first. And so Jesus isn't telling us to hate all those people. He just is making a point about what our greatest superior love ought to be. And scripture does explicitly command that we hold God above all other people, right? And in actuality, the way that we best love our families is actually by loving God more. Because if you trust the Lord to be who he is and who he says he is, then the more you follow after him above anything else, the better and more you're actually able to love your family in return. That's the great kind of reversal and irony of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. The deeper I press into the Lord over and above my wife and kids, the better served my wife and kids actually are by that. Or husbands, or your children, or parents, or siblings, or friends, insert whoever. That's the, the great reversal of the kingdom. There's the whole lot of last shall be first and, and these things that don't seem to make sense. But the, the more we love God above our families, the better our families off are actually off. Because he's, he's breathing life into us. He's drawing us closer to him. And we, in turn, impart that down to those who, who we live with and spend all of our time with. And so their growth then directly correlates and their spiritual growth occurs more than it would because you're following after him and, and they're following after you. And, and, and it's this beautiful dance that happens where everybody's spirituality tends to grow. And we get to know the Lord better and we follow him more collectively. 
My wife and I talk about it all the time. The, the, the two biggest things I care about for my kids in, in that order is that they know Jesus and that they, that they are safe and that they, I like to use the term, that they launch someday. Right? <laughs> like that they actually, that, that something, that the Lord uses them in some way, that they have a, a passion and a calling that they, that they fulfill, whatever that might look like. Right? That's, that's the hope, that in that order. I want them to know Jesus. I would rather they know Jesus than that they're safe because that means that they're safe eternally. Not just in, in this life. And so because God works in us and grows us, it allows us to bring more life to those whom we love in turn. So he, he then tells them that they have to pick up their cross and follow him. So the first is this relational kind of sacrifice that they have to make. And now it's a life sacrifice, right? They didn't know that Jesus would die on the cross. But when, when Jesus says this to them in, in Luke 14, they didn't understand what crucifixion was. And so when he says you have to bear your own cross... They would understand that that means you have to die to yourself without even knowing that Jesus would actually die real on a cross. Right? They understood what he was saying to them. He said, if you want to follow me, you have, to, you have to bear your own cross. You have to take it up. You have to die to who you are so that you can become who I have called you and meant for you to be. So to, to follow Jesus, they have to go to their death. Not to a new regime party in Jerusalem, but to their death. Do we think he might have lost some followers after Luke 14? Do you think there are some people who might have said, you know what, this isn't what I signed up for. The healing's great, don't get me wrong, but I don't know about this whole hate my family and, and dying to self thing, right? It's, it's again, it's not the best elevator pitch of Jesus, but he wants them to know that following him means actually following him. They're walking to their own death in a way. Right? For Jesus, it was the, the death that he conquered in three days to take the sin and penalty of everyone upon him himself. For us, it's the death. We, we, we will all die physically one day, but it's the death that leads to, just as heroes, we also shall rise, rebirth. But every one of us has to walk to a death in two ways. Number one, actual physical death, but number two, a death to ourselves. The old has to pass before the new can come. And so he tells them, pick up your cross. And he wants them to know that following him means just that. Right? In many ways that you think, in terms of comfort, in terms of your own desires, in terms of the plans that you have for this world, a lot of those have to die in order for his plan, which is just monumentally better to rise. And so these, these verses might seem really hard and harsh. In some ways they are, but they're actually quite loving, right? Jesus speaks these words to the crowds for no other reason than he, he's not somebody who wants to dupe somebody. Jesus isn't interested in, in kind of sneaking you in through some side door, right? It's not a, a circus show. Jesus isn't going to lure you in with a whole bunch of love and language and then, and then flip the script on you later. He's saying, look, before we ever get into this anymore, I'm, I'm telling you right now, this is what it is. If you want to follow me, you pick up your cross, you die to yourself, you expect things to be hard, and you, have, you love me over everyone else. You choose me over everyone else without fail all the time. That's what it, that's what it means to be, to be one of my disciples. Who's still in? Right? That's what this verse is all about. And in light of what he's about to go do, things we'll talk about as we get into the weeks ahead, it, it makes sense that they ought to be warned because 
when he, when he goes to Jerusalem and he gets arrested and he gets spat on and beaten and, and eventually killed and, and then rises and all these people are still surprised, it, it, it's baffling to me because he told them, look, before we go any further, this is the road that I'm getting on. As Jim Collins would say, this is my bus. Who's on the bus? Right? If that's not where you want to go, get off the bus now. That's what Jesus is doing here. And these verses seem so harsh, but they're so loving because we have a God that we serve who is a God of clarity. He's not veiled. He's not mysterious. He doesn't want us to think one way and then switch it on us. He tells us exactly what it means to be his followers. And he tells us, if we're going to jump in, here's what it looks like. Do you still want to be a part of that, right? And then after these statements, Jesus asks a series of questions. The first is about a, a building, right? He asks who here takes on a project without counting the cost, right? Who here remodels their bathroom without a budget? Some of you might do that. Some of you are like, I just get the axe in there and just start taking stuff, hammering stuff down and, and tear it all apart. And now we'll just like build it little by little until 20 years later we have a bathroom, right? Most of you don't do that. If you're going to remodel something in your house, you have an understanding of what it costs, you have a contractor, you, you sit down and here's my budget, here's the fixtures that I can afford or not afford, and, and then you do your project. You, you put it all out there, right? That's, that's kind of what he's saying here. Who builds this tower without understanding the cost of it first? You consider most other areas of life very carefully before you proceed. Right? You should consider this with equal levels of, of clarity and focus. Right? He's talking to the people, and we have them today. There's people that they make a decision to follow Jesus, and it's out of a, an emotional or spiritual high. They come to some experience or some concert, or you know, they're on a beach, and they and, and they're just overwhelmed with emotion, and, and, and they I want to follow you with my, my whole life. And, and Jesus says, that's great. I, I celebrate that. But, but make the budget. <laughs> make the life budget. Count the cost. Right? Don't just jump in because you felt like it one day. Understand what it actually means to be a, a follower of mine. Take your time and think it through. Right? And then he reiterates it by asking another question about war this time. Right? Who, what king, when he's with 10,000 people up against someone coming at them with 20, doesn't count the cost to see if they could be victorious. Can I beat this guy with half the men? Do I have a strategical advantage? If I don't, well, then you better find a way to go make peace before they get there. And these questions really are, are asking the same thing, but they're, they're two different angles, and, he, and here's how you know. Um, the first guy has, has an option. The second really doesn't. In the first example, you all, if you count the cost and you don't have the money, you don't build the tower, right? And so you can kind of choose to be out. You can just choose not to be a tower builder. But in the, the second option, there's a, a king with twice the men coming at you. You don't have the option to put your head in the sand and think and just do nothing. You have to act in some way, and you have to count the cost of one action over another, right? The choices aren't nothing or war. The choices are war or really try to seek peace because you can't win, right? And, and I think Jesus gives us these two examples for, for reasons because on the one hand, we, we have a choice, right? You, can, you could choose to walk out of here and say, you know, I'm, I'm counting up that cost of following Jesus and I don't like the idea of loving him more than my family and, and, and more than myself. And I don't like the idea of picking up my own cross. I would just rather go live my life and go off and do my own thing and take my, my chances. I'm going to go ahead and, and pass. Every one of you in this room has the ability to walk out the doors and, and do that today, right? But, but in, in another sense, when we look at life and, and the spiritual warfare that goes on, there is a battle being raged, 
right now. Right? The enemy is prowling, and there is a, a final spiritual battle being set up. And so in some ways, it feels like we have a choice to walk away from, from Jesus. But in some ways, we are like that king who's staring down the barrel of a very real enemy who, who we are outgunned against significantly, right? And, and we don't have life apart from Jesus. And so we, we are in a position where we look at our, our arsenal and the arsenal of the enemy and we go, yeah, we don't have what it takes to win. We, we got to figure out a way to do one of two things. Either we got to figure out a way to make peace with the enemy or we got to figure out a way to beat the enemy. And I have news for you guys. There's no way for us to beat the enemy other than to hitch our wagon to Jesus. And so in some ways, you have a choice to make. In some ways, it's really no choice at all, right? It's death or Christ. So I think that's why he, he gives us those two very similar stories that have very different kind of deeper backgrounds going on. Because you can walk out of here, but what's the cost of doing that? What's the worth of doing that? Right? And so Jesus is preparing all of us and his people at that time for the reality of following him. He says, don't just follow me because you hear of salvation and want the good stuff. Sit down and count the cost. And, and what is that cost? Everything. I want it all. Your life, your stuff, your loves, your affections, all of it. I want all of that to be under me. If you ever have to pick between anything else in your life and me, I want you to pick me every time, and I want you to not have to think about it. I want you to just, to just love me so deeply and follow after me so deeply that that starts to become, through the power of the Holy Spirit, second nature to you, right? Your life, your stuff, your loves, I want it all. But what he gives you is so much better and so much worth it, right? If you count the cost of following Jesus, what you'll find is that it's worth the cost, right? To use business terms, Jesus' ROI is really strong. Some of you folks are, are deep in business and that'll, that'll, that'll resonate with you. And so the question is, are you willing to count and to pay the cost, right? Um, author and, and pastor Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, when money or the things it can buy makes us hesitant about doing what we feel the Lord is calling us to do, we are disciples of things, not of Christ. Would-be disciples need to think about it and then say, Lord, all I have is yours. So that's the question. He ends by using this metaphor of salt to talk about Christians and their effect in the world. And when we retain aspects of our own desires, we lose our saltiness. Now, it's interesting because salt can't actually lose its saltiness. Right? But it can be diluted by adding a whole bunch of other things, right? If you take a, a, salt, a bunch of salt in your hand and you eat it, it's really, really salty. If you put a pinch of salt into a giant thing of soup and you don't put enough in, you won't even taste it. It'll be watered down. It'll lose its effect, its saltiness. And he's saying when we hold on to this other stuff, when we water down our saltiness, so to speak, our, our, our fervor and our passion for the Lord and our love for him, when it gets watered down by all this other stuff, we lose that saltiness. We dilute our ability to be a, a bearing of fruit in this kingdom, right? That doesn't affect the, the way that Jesus loves you and saves you from your, your sin. It's not a salvation issue, but he is saying that if you, if you don't, if you hitch your wagon to me, but then carry this other stuff too, it dilutes how effective you can be in my kingdom and how much fruit you can bear. And, and when someone loses the saltiness, well, it's, it doesn't have a whole lot of use in the kingdom, does it? 
And so that's why he, he ends it with this salt metaphor to make people understand, look, if you actually drop everything and follow me, I will use you in this world in ways that you can't even ask or imagine. I will use my people to bring flavor to the world, to bring a joy and a, and a, and a joie de vivre, right, of, of just this love of, of life uh, that, that we carry everywhere we go that becomes infectious and contagious. By the way, that's how we evangelize. We take this, this love of God that we experience in, in Christian community and we simply break it out of here into the community in which we find ourselves. Right? We don't argue people into God's kingdom. We show them that in the world that we're in and all the mess that we see, there's something better out there for them if they would just give it up and hitch their wagon to Jesus. Right? Most of you that came to Christ, especially those who didn't grow up in the church, right? you, you had that kind of experience. You eventually just found yourself understanding that his way is just better, right? You're not following him out of guilt or some hellfire insurance. You, you're after the Lord because you have found that in life, when you do that, it's just better. It's a better investment to invest in Jesus than in anything else. And the more you do it, the more you experience the truth of that and the more you trust him, right? And then you, you give more of yourself to him. You allow your love for him to increase above other things in other areas of life, and he's faithful in those, and you surrender more, and then he's faithful in those, and that causes you to surrender more, and that's what we call sanctification, right? That's what we call growing in the likeness of Christ. Every time we invest in Jesus, the dividends pay mightily. Jesus asks you, count the cost. The church and every church we know a decade ago, I think, had more people in it. One of the things that we see happening in the culture around us right, is that churches are shrinking, um, in America at least, not on a global scale. On a global scale, the church is actually exploding in growth. Uh, but but in, in the Western world, we see a shrinking church. And I'm not sure that we're seeing a shrinking church so much as we're, we're seeing the cultural Christianity of our day fade away. Right? It costs more to be a Christian than it did 20 years ago doesn't get you the, the same uh, respect and, and admonition that it used to, right? It used to be, a, you walked around, I mean, I even, I'm, I'm in my 30s and I remember, you know, if, if you were somewhere else but church on Sunday, people kind of look at you funny, right? And so there, we have a whole lot of folks who, who were once here or in other churches across the whole Western world, but they're not anymore. And that's simply because, well, they counted the cost and they decided it wasn't worth it. Jesus tells us it is. And so our, our challenge and our question is, number one, count the cost. But number two, are you going to trust that the price you pay to follow Jesus is worth it every time? Right? That he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do, that he is trustworthy, and that he is always good. Not always easy, but always good. Right? As we move more and more into these times of of, of Holy Week, and we start to see Jesus be mistreated by, by the religious leaders and arrested, and all the things that come as he enters into Jerusalem that we'll get into in the weeks ahead, right? That's, that's, the, th that's the thing we have to keep our eyes on, is none of those things are a surprise to Jesus, and all of those things are happening for the ultimate good and glorification of God and through him us, right? Because investing in Jesus pays off every time. Let's pray. God, we, we are grateful that you love us so much. 
that you seek our own good. That you, are, that you created the, the universe for, for the sake of your glory and out of an outpouring of just your holiness and your, your awesomeness. And, and you create us to be a reflection of that glory. And even when we fail you, you are so loving and so good that you, you seek to draw us back in to redeem us. We love you, Lord. We are so eternally grateful. Lord, we pray for, for those amongst us or outside of these walls, not, not because we think we're better, but we, we pray for those who are counting your costs and deciding that they, they aren't worth paying because they don't, they don't truly know you. Lord, we know with, with confidence because of your spirits grabbing a hold of us, we know that the cost is worth it. The price we pay to be a follower of you is, is so much worth it because we, we give a little to receive everything. So Father, we are grateful for your provision, for your love, for how deeply you care about us, that you would send your only son to die on the cross so that we might have life. Not just life, but abundant life at your right hand. Be with us as we go forth from this place. We pray that we might proclaim that truth and that, that beautiful, wonderful news to everyone we meet this week. And we ask that there are people as a result of those in this room who speak by your power and your might that would count the cost this week and say, yeah, it's worth paying. I'm in. We love you and we praise you. And all as people said,